see you all this morning and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the worship. Um, I was reminded this morning, you know, uh, when I woke up and I looked at the word, uh, one verse that came to my mind is Nehemiah 10. Does somebody have it in memory? The joy of the Lord is your? Absolutely. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So with that, I see a lot of serious faces here. Can you all smile, please? All of you. Right. So it's going to be a little involved passage. So I want you all to smile and sit at ease, please, and listen to this very carefully and give me your undivided attention. <clears throat> um, George, when he started uh, this morning's thought, he started with uh, superheroes. Uh, I don't know any of them, but I'll start with what I grew up with, which is Calvin and That's right. Uh, so today's passage is going to be about the question of the conservation. And since I grew up with uh, Calvin and Hobbes, this comic strip, I want to begin with this illustration. <clears throat> that Calvin was one day sitting at work and he was looking out the window and he wasn't doing any work. His boss walked up to him and he was unaware of the fact that his boss walked up to him and he caught him looking out the window and he asked him the question, Calvin, why aren't you working? And Calvin, without much thought, he confessed to his boss and he said, because I didn't see you coming. <laughs> that conversation, perhaps, captures for many of us the reality of our lives. Is it possible that some of us are not doing what we are supposed to be doing because we don't know what's coming ahead of us? A passage like this morning's will jolt us into asking some serious questions about ourselves. It involves questions and answers about the kingdom of God. So as we begin this morning's passage, let's ask ourselves these questions. So this morning, we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions as we begin this sermon. Firstly, where is the kingdom of God and how does it matter? the kingdom of God and how does it matter to me? Or better, how should my understanding of the kingdom affect my life? How should my understanding of the kingdom affect my life? Now Jesus is continuing his journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. We've seen that and we've been seeing that right from chapter 9 verse 51. If you remember in chapter 9 verse 51, he set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem because he understood that the time for the ascension is at hand. And now, as we look at this passage, he is still on his way to Jerusalem. He is still on his way to Jerusalem. Okay, let's, uh, I think they'll come up soon, so we'll just, we'll just go on. <clears throat> now, if you look at uh, Luke chapter 17, verse 11, all the way till chapter 18, verse 8, in this Lucan where Jesus is journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem, this forms one major division or one major section. Luke chapter 17, verse 11, all the way till chapter 18, verse 8. And the major theme of this division is eschatology or teaching about the last things. Okay, so uh, let me just go back one slide here and... Uh, I'll operate it. Uh, okay, look at this. Jesus here, like I said, 
is continuing from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, this is Galilee up there, and he's walking all the way to Jerusalem, where his last days will be spent, and he'll die, rise again, and he'll ascend into heaven. Right? So, chapter 9, verse 51, we saw that he set his face towards Jerusalem, and he's walking towards Jerusalem because he understood that the Son of Man must be taken up, and he must go back to his father, having finished the work that the father has given him here on earth. So he's walking towards Jerusalem, he's walking towards the cross, and on the way there, he teaches the disciples a lot of things. And Luke devotes 10 chapters for those teachings, chapter 9, verse 51, all the way till 1944. This is called the Lucan Travelogue, you know, so Luke records for us several teachings about Jesus, not the least of which is the cost of discipleship. Now, as we come here, chapter 17, verse 11, all the way till chapter 18, verse 8, it forms one major division in Lucan Travelogue. And the major theme of this is eschatology. <clears throat> it begins with the miracle of the cleansing of the ten lepers. Remember the miracle? Uh, it is from chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. It highlights the importance of faith and gratitude. And then we need to understand here that miracles reveal who Jesus is. And miracles also reveal the nature of the times. This is the beginning of the messianic age. This is the beginning of the messianic age. And so a miracle like the cleansing of ten lepers naturally leads to the question about the kingdom which is a passage we're going to be looking at today, which is chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Then Jesus teaches a parable in chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And this parable urges the disciples to pray for the consummation and to expect a quick vindication that is going to come. Now, when you look at the entire division, at the center of this division stands faith in God and his sovereign program. We must trust in God. And we must have faith in his sovereign plan and program. Now, in our study of Luke so far, we have been looking at four major themes, right? We started with four major themes that go right from one end of Luke all the way to the other. They also continue into Acts because it's the same author who's writing both these books. So one of the major themes that we've been looking at is the role of Jesus in the plan and the program of God. The role of Jesus in the plan and program of God. As we progress towards the end of Luke, several pieces have fallen into place in the puzzle, or we've been able to put several pieces in the puzzle in the right place. This passage that we're going to study this morning gives for us a few more pieces in the puzzle by clarifying for us the concept of the kingdom of God. It clarifies for us the concept of the kingdom of God. More than that, it teaches us that God's kingdom program is inextricably bound up with the person of Jesus. God's kingdom program is inextricably connected to the person of Jesus. So we see better from this passage and a little more clearly than what we've been seeing, uh, what we've been seeing so far about the role of Jesus in the plan and the program and the purposes of God. So today's passage will reveal to us two things, two simple things that you and I must know about the kingdom of God so we can live a life worthy of his calling. But two things about the kingdom of God. Luke discusses these two features in Luke chapter 17 verses 20 through 37. 
Okay? So the first thing, in verses 20 through 21, you will see that you and I must reflect the life and values of the kingdom as you understand where it is. You and I must reflect the life and values of the kingdom as you understand where it is. A question that usually emerges in a passage like this is, where is the kingdom now? Where is the kingdom now? And what is the relationship between the church and the kingdom? Where is the kingdom now? And what is the relationship between the church and the kingdom? In our passage, Luke says that the kingdom is not to be searched for since it is associated with Jesus. It is not to be searched for since it is associated with Jesus. Now, this requires some explanation. In fact, a kind of a canonical interpretation. And we will do that as we go forward. But Luke gives us a two-step uh, explanation to it. The first thing here is that the kingdom does not come with signs to be observed. The kingdom does not come with signs to be observed. Look at chapter 17, verses 20 and the first part of verse 21. Let me read that for you. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. Now the Pharisees have noticed Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God. In fact, they also noticed that Jesus was proclaiming that he is the one who brings in the kingdom as well. He is a central figure of the kingdom. However, despite the miracles that Jesus performed, the Pharisees were not convinced. So they come and ask Jesus the question, when will the kingdom come? When will the kingdom come? Now such questioning of Jesus by the Pharisees is a common theme in the entire Gospel of Luke. The, the question that they raise here is, when is the kingdom coming? Or in other words, they ask him to explain the entire kingdom program. When is the kingdom coming? Now hear me please. In some Jewish settings, there was a glorious picture associated with the arrival of the kingdom. The Pharisees, like much of Judaism, believed that the glorious kingdom will arrive with a lot of cosmic signs. With a lot of heavenly signs, signs in the sky. So that's what they believe. The Pharisees believe the same thing. There'll be great heavenly signs that will mark the arrival of the kingdom. Now, given the nature of Jesus' ministry, the question here is not overly surprising. What was the nature of Jesus' ministry? It was a humble style of ministry. And the way he was bringing in the kingdom of God and the mysterious way in which he was revealing it did not match the expectations of the Pharisees. Therefore, they come and ask him the question about, explain to us what the kingdom program is. Tell us where the kingdom of God is. Now, Jesus begins his response by noting that the kingdom of God does not come with signs to be observed. Look at what he says. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now, this comment is very important for us to understand because Jesus is challenging the assumption of the Pharisees and much of Judaism that the kingdom's coming is marked by cosmic display of signs. He's challenging the assumption. And the Pharisees here are so caught up in looking for some great apocalyptic signs in the sky that they missed what God is doing in Jesus right in front of their eyes. In their desire to calculate the kingdom's arrival by some great signs in the sky, they have ignored what is happening right before their, their eyes. 
So Jesus here is saying that they failed to see the actual sign. That is Jesus himself. That is right there. What else does Jesus say here? Look at verse 21a. Nor will they say, look here it is, or there. Now this is a significant verse for us to understand. Luke's theology of the kingdom. And Jesus says here that the kingdom is not to be hunted for by looking here and there. The kingdom is not to be searched for by looking here and there. The expectations of the Pharisees need to change. They will not need to point here and there for the kingdom and announce that they have found the kingdom. Why? This brings us to the second point, that the kingdom has arrived with Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 21b. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, to understand this phrase better, especially the phrase in the midst of you, I want to raise two questions here, and I want you all to give me your undivided attention for the next 10 minutes, please, because this is the heart of the passage, and I want us all to understand the entire kingdom program as the Bible presents it, and we can put pieces together in the jigsaw puzzle that we looked at. Now, the first question I want to raise is, what does in the midst of you mean? The phrase actually means within their reach or within their grasp or before you. So the kingdom of God is within your grasp or within your reach or before you is what Jesus is saying here. In one sentence, they ask for a sign and Jesus is saying that the sign is Jesus himself. The sign is Jesus himself. The emphasis here is that the Pharisees confront the kingdom in the person of Jesus. The Pharisees come to the kingdom in the person of Jesus. They do not need to look all around for it because its central figure is right in front of their eyes. And to see the kingdom, look to Jesus and what he has to offer. Now hear me please. So Jesus can speak of the kingdom being present in his own day by virtue of the fact that he himself, the Messiah, was present there, ministering by the power of the Holy Spirit, manifesting in his work the characteristics of the eschatological kingdom of God that's going to come. Did you hear what I said? Jesus can speak of the kingdom being present in his person in his day by virtue of the fact that the king himself is present in their midst, and in his works that he is doing by the power of the Spirit, he is displaying the powers of the eschatological kingdom that is going to come. So Jesus is speaking that the king of the kingdom is here, is in their midst. And all the signs that they would have thought about actually point to him. The king himself is here. And since they reject him, no other signs will help them. So that's what he means by the kingdom of God is in your midst. The second question I want to raise here is, is the kingdom said to be future or present? Is the kingdom said to be future or present? Now, I want you all to look at your Bibles here, please, because Luke is making a distinction between the kingdoms coming now in verses 20 and 21 and the kingdom that will be gloriously completed and consummated which is given for us in chapter in verses 22 through 37. So Luke is talking about both the kingdom now and the kingdom that is going to come in the future. Verses 20 and 21 talk about the kingdom now. 
and verses 22 through 37 talk about the kingdom that is yet future. So I want to introduce a theological phrase here, and this is what we call as the already not yet aspect of the kingdom, already not yet character of the kingdom, which means the kingdom comes in stages. One is present, the other is yet future. The kingdom is already here, but the kingdom is not yet here. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but the kingdom has not been consummated yet. So there's the already aspect of it, there's the not yet aspect of it. The kingdom is already here, but the kingdom will come in its glorious completion at the return of the Son of Man or the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the already not yet tension that the New Testament presents. And once we understand this tension, we can understand much of the New Testament the epistles, the gospels, and everything else. Now look at this slide, please. We just saw that when Jesus was in this world, the kingdom's presence was where? In the person of the king, right? In the person of the king. And the power of the kingdom was displayed in his works. He performed miracles. He taught great things. So in the pre-cross ministry of Jesus, the kingdom was present in his person. And the king is present, therefore the kingdom was present. And the kingdom was revealed in and through the activity of Jesus. Now, much of Jesus' teaching was given to us in the form of parables. Hear me, please. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives a series of parables that teach about the mysteries of the kingdom. Now, please listen very carefully. Matthew 13, there's a series of parables that talks about the mysteries of the kingdom. They, these parables seem to give to us a new revelation of the kingdom beyond the kingdom being present in the person of the king. The new revelation or the mysteries of the kingdom in Matthew 13 give us a new revelation about the kingdom beyond the kingdom being present in the person of the king. What is the new revelation? The new revelation is that there is a form or a stage of the kingdom called the mystery form of the kingdom that comes prior or that is present prior to the coming of the kingdom in its fullness. There is a form of the kingdom or a stage of the kingdom or there is a form or a stage of the kingdom's presence that is seen before the fullness of the kingdom comes or the apocalyptic kingdom comes. This new stage that Matthew 13 parables talk about seems to be different from the kingdom being present in the person of the king. It is also different from the kingdom coming in its fullness at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a kingdom that is called the mystery form of the kingdom, where the king is in heaven and the kingdom's citizens are on earth. And that's why they are called the sons of the kingdom. <coughs> Getting the point? They call the sons of the kingdom. Now here in the pre-cross ministry of Jesus, you have the kingdom present in the very person of the king. Jesus is physically present here. In the eschatological kingdom, when it comes in its fullness, Jesus is physically present. He will come with the kingdom. But here, the mystery form of the kingdom, where is Jesus? At the right hand of God. Who's here? The kingdom citizens, the sons of the kingdom are here. And this is called the mystery form of the kingdom. When Jesus was ministering in this world, here in the pre-cross ministry, 
He offered forgiveness of sins. And he, he also offered the gift of the Spirit. Now that he is sitting in heaven at the right hand of God, who in this world is going to offer the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit? Who? It's the church. It is the church that proclaims the gospel and invites people to come into this God space where the Spirit of God indwells the church and we offer them forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. So here's the point. The kingdom invitation now is offered through the church. So the kingdom is currently manifested in and through the church. The church is a revelation of the kingdom. The church is the custodian of the kingdom. The church is the guardian of the gospel of the kingdom. The church proclaims the keys to the kingdom, which is the gospel, but the church is not the kingdom. See the point? The kingdom program is much bigger than the church. The church overlaps with one stage of the kingdom or one phase of the kingdom, but the church is not the kingdom. The church is in the kingdom. It is not the kingdom. The kingdom is made up of those people who responded to Jesus and shared in the benefits that he has to offer. And kingdom citizens are those who turn to him and come to him in repentance. So they form a new community of God's people and they are to reflect God's love and care by the way they live. You see, my dear brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this morning, you and I don't have to search high and low to find where the kingdom is. Why? Because the church is a manifestation of the kingdom. And if you want to live the kingdom life, you live it right here in the church. Because if you're a member of the church, you're a son of the kingdom. And that's why Paul confidently writes to believers in Colossae, and he says this, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into what? Into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You're part of the church, you're the son of the kingdom. But there is a greater kingdom, or the eschatological kingdom, that's going to come, of which we will all be part of at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is a reflection of the kingdom, the church is a manifestation of the kingdom, and therefore the application here for you and me is, are you faithful in living the kingdom life? Am I faithful in living the kingdom life? Brothers and sisters, I just want to mention, because of lack of time, and I lost about five to seven minutes in between, but that's okay. You know, uh, I want to mention something, just one thing that helps us live the, faithfully the kingdom life, and that is this. In everything that we do in the church, in everything that we do in our lives, let us make it our goal to please the Lord. That is living the kingdom life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our goal or our aim to please him. We make it our goal or our aim to please him. So in the church, whether we serve on the music team or we preach from the pulpit or take Sunday school or do anything in the setup team or anything, let us resolve this morning to please God in everything that we do. That's living the life of the kingdom. In other words, in everything that we do, whether we're talking to one another, the way we talk to others, 
The way we talk to our elders or deacons or the music team or any team, the way we converse with one another, the way we invite new people into our church, let us make sure that we please God in everything that we do. This will help us live the kingdom life faithfully. This will help us live the kingdom life faithfully. So very quickly, in verses 20 and 21, we saw that we must reflect the life and values of the kingdom as you understand where it is. So uh, I just want to just wanna ask a question before I move forward, please. This is just for our understanding. Is the kingdom program clear? Yes. The kingdom in his person, the mystery form of the kingdom, and the eschatological kingdom that comes with this presence as it returns uh, in the future to establish the kingdom. So there's a second thing that we need to understand about the kingdom, and that is in verses 22 through 37. They say that we must be loyal to the end as you eagerly wait for the kingdom's consummation. We must be loyal to the end as you eagerly wait for the kingdom's consummation. The kingdom may be present now, but that does not mean that the Son of Man has returned and established the kingdom. Luke says the kingdom hasn't fully come, and the kingdom will come in its fullness when Jesus returns in judgment and power. And he says three things about it. I don't know why the slide is showing all of it in one go. I wanted to click, but that's fine. We'll go step by step. The first thing that Luke says here is that rejection of Jesus must precede his glorious return. Look at verses 22 through 25. I'll go step by step. Verse 22 first. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Now, Jesus begins this discourse to his disciples with a comment about unrealized desire. Remember in verses 20 and 21, he was talking to the Pharisees. Now he's addressing his disciples. The audience is different, different, and that makes a difference as well in our interpretation. So he's talking to the disciples here, and Jesus is telling his followers that they will desire the coming of the Son of Man, but they will not see it. The phrase, the Son of Man here, refers to Jesus. And in this context, the title refers to the authority that Jesus has as he comes in judgment at his second coming. And Jesus is saying this to reassure the disciples that the Son of Man will eventually come and he will exert justice on their behalf. Which means when the Messiah comes, he will bring vindication to his people. He will bring vindication to the saints and the believers. And the disciples will long for the Son of Man's glorious reign, but the desire alone will not bring it, is what Jesus is saying. There's an appropriate time for it. There is a form of kingdom that must come before, but at the right time, at the appropriate time, when God has designed it all, Jesus will come with his kingdom. In fact, he says something must precede the glorious return of the Son of Man. And we look at that in verse 25 a little later. Look at verse 23 now. And they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go out or follow them. Jesus here is warning the disciples not to let their desire to see the kingdom mislead them. Because there will be many people who will come and claim that they have found the Son of Man. Look here he is, look there he is. But the disciples are not to pursue the claims that the Son of Man is present somewhere. Why? Look at verse 24. For... As the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. 
Why should the disciples go after all these claims that people have found the Son of Man? Because when the Son of Man comes, it'll be unmistakably clear. It'll be unmistakably clear. It'll be like lightning flashing across the sky. What is the point? The point here is the visibility of this return of the Son of Man. It means that when the Son of Man comes, he'll be visible to everybody. You know, Revelation 1, is it verse 7? Behold, he is coming in clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him, and all the ends of the earth shall mourn because of him. Even so, amen, says John. Now here, the phrase used is the day of the Son of Man. It's probably a variation of the expression, the day of the Lord. It's a decisive time of judgment that starts with the return of the Son of Man. And what Jesus is saying here is that the start of the day of the Lord will be obvious to everyone. Everybody will see it. Verse 25. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus is saying, you're thinking about the glorious return, which is good. But before that, something important, something significant must happen. And what is it? The Son of Man must be rejected and he must suffer. You know, in the original language, there is a necessity for the Son of Man. It is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer and be rejected. He must suffer and be rejected. The point here is that God has designed events that way. Suffering and rejection of the Son of Man must precede his glorious return. So the Son of Man must be rejected before he will gloriously reign in the future, which is what happened on the cross. Second thing, Jesus will return in judgment when people are unprepared. Look at verses 26 through 30. I'll read all the five verses for you. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and what happened? Destroyed them all. Likewise, another illustration from the Old Testament, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Now look at this. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus compares the judgment that he is going to bring when he returns to two illustrations from history. And the Old Testament talks about both of them. He talks about the judgment that came down on people in the days of Noah at the time of flood. He also talks about uh, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And both these are two great periods in the Old Testament when the judgment of God was poured out on humanity. And just like in those days, when people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage and all of that, until Noah entered the ark, they were all doing their own affairs without any reference to God without thinking about God. And all of a sudden, the flood came, and what happened? Life came to a standstill. They died. Similarly, in the days of Lot, they were all eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and all of that. But when Lot left Sodom, judgment came down suddenly, and what was once a vibrant city was reduced to rubble and ashes. And Jesus is comparing that 
with his return at the end and he's saying there is going to be a finality of judgment when I come back. There is going to be a point of no return. And he says the days of the Son of Man, which is the days preceding his return, will be like the ancient days of judgment. It will be a judgment on those who are not related to God. It will be a judgment on those who never thought about God and went about life as though God didn't matter at all. And suddenly the Son of Man will return and he will pour out judgment on the wicked. Now hear me please. The idea that there is a second chance when the Son of Man returns is a myth according to the Bible. Now in the context of Luke here, where there is so much opposition to Jesus, as Jesus is walking on the way to Jerusalem, there is so much opposition to Jesus. The point here is that failure to embrace Jesus leaves one exposed when the judgment comes. Failure to embrace Jesus and to be rightly related to him leaves one exposed to the judgment when it comes. And failure to decide for Jesus leaves one defenseless before God. Now Jesus speaks of the end because how we relate to Jesus now will decide our end. And when he returns, if we are not rightly related to him, look at the judgment and the words that he is talking about. He will return in judgment when people are unprepared. Thirdly and quickly, the disciples must live with the right priorities. The disciples must live with the right priorities. Verses 31 through 37. Now you may not see verse 36 in some of your translations. That's perfectly fine. It's about some manuscripts. Don't worry about that. So the Bible may jump from 35 through 37. It's okay. Okay. So verses 30 and 31 and 32. On that day, let the one who's on the house stop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Verse 32. Remember Lord's wife. Remember Lord's wife. So Jesus is saying, when the Son of Man returns, no one will have time to escape quickly. Or you will have to escape quickly. To highlight how total and how swift the judgment is going to be, Jesus talks about somebody sitting on the rooftop. And he is saying that if you're sitting on the rooftop, don't even bother about going into your house to get your possessions. Just curry down the, the stairs and just run away because the judgment is going to be swift. The judgment is going to be total. Imminent danger must be avoided by fleeing. The second picture he pictures is similar here. If you're working in a field, flee as quickly as possible to miss the dire consequences of the day. The point here is, if one is not already prepared for the day, when it comes, there will be no more time to prepare. So be prepared for the day is what Jesus is saying. And if you and I are too tied to the things of the world, we will miss hearing the voice of God. And then as a reminder, Jesus invokes the memory of Lord's wife. Now in Judaism, Lord's wife is seen as an unbeliever for turning back and looking at what belonged to her. And therefore, Jesus says that, remember Lord's wife. Why? Because her death resulted from turning to look back in Sodom and Gomorrah. She's a negative illustration of the consequences of holding on to one's life without listening to God's voice. The call, is a remember, the call to remember is a call to pay heed to that lesson from the life of Lord's wife. Verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. 
Now, Jesus is explaining that the disciples need to be prepared to suffer because of their relationship with God or because of their relationship with Jesus. Look at what he says. The one who seeks to gain life will lose it. And the one who loses life will keep it. Now, this seems a little mysterious, but the first half of the verse is emphasizing physical preservation. And the second half of the verse is emphasizing spiritual preservation. If you choose the Lord, if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, it may mean persecution from the world and you may be putting your life to risk. But it is much better than putting your soul to risk for eternal punishment. Yes. Deciding to honor God may mean suffering now, but it means eternal glories when he returns. And for Christ's followers, that is for you and me, this is the crucial point of the passage. And the point is this. You and I must be faithful until he returns. You and I must live faithfully until he returns. Look at verses 34 and 35. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in bed. And it's, it is a masculine gender used there, so it could be two men there. Uh, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. So what does the day look like, the day of the return of the Son of Man? Two people, whether in bed or grinding, will be divided. Which means one will be taken and the other left behind. The picture is a portrayal clearly of the separation from the, of the just from the unjust, of the righteous from the unrighteous. There is going to be a separation for sure. In this stage of the kingdom, all of us are living together. The wheat and the weeds, all of us are living together. the parable? All of us are living together. But one day, when the Son of Man returns, the separation is going to be very obvious. The righteous will be separated from the unrighteous. God will vindicate the righteous and he will protect his own. Look at verse 37. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. A mysterious saying, but let's look at that in the context. Now, Jesus just said that when he returns, his return will be visible to all, right? Just as lightning that comes from the east is also seen in the west, so shall be the return of the Son of Man, which means it's visibility. It'll be visible to all. You just can't miss it. So the judgment cannot be missed. So the disciples come and ask the question, where is the judgment, Lord? Is that an appropriate question? Is that an appropriate question? It is an appropriate question because when the Son of Man actually returns, he will return somewhere. And the judgment will have some location. And so the disciples ask the question, where, Lord, where is this judgment going to happen? Jesus answers by saying, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Vultures is a better translation than eagles. So vultures will gather. The image here is brutally graphic in portraying the total devastation and death that comes for those who reject God. Let me say that again. The image is brutally graphic in portraying the reality of the judgment that's going to come upon those who reject Jesus. 
The disciples ask the question, where, Lord, is the judgment going to happen? Jesus deflects the question and he talks about the mood of what's going to happen when he comes. What does he say? When the Son of Man comes, he will come in total judgment. And when he comes in total judgment, when he is done with the judgment, only vultures will be left for those left in judgment. That is going to be the total devastation that the Son of Man is going to bring upon the wicked when he returns. So the warning about the return closes with a field full of carcasses staring at us. The imagery is given to us to move our souls to reflect about the kind of devastation that comes to us if you and I are not related, rightly related to Jesus. If you and I are not rightly related to God. For the unprepared, the day of the Son of Man will be a day of judgment. This is the classic day of the Lord warning. So this is Luke's way of saying that the Son of Man who is going to return is God himself. Is God himself. So let me ask you this question as I ask myself this question in closing. Are you, sorry, are you preparing yourself for Jesus' return? Are you preparing yourself for, for Jesus' return? Was this a slide that was here on this slide? Or this, this was there? Okay. Uh, are you preparing yourself for Jesus' return? Let me speak to your heart for the next two minutes, please, in application. Brothers and sisters, if you've been coming to church for a while and you've not given your life to Jesus and Jesus is still a stranger to you or somebody you know about but you're not related to him, may I remind you from this passage that a terrible judgment awaits those who are not related to Jesus. A terrible judgment awaits those who are not rightly related to Jesus. The judgment is final and there is no turning back. So may I plead with you this morning. Would you come to Jesus, repent of your sin and trust in him, the one who loves you and died for you on the cross. But if you're a believer in Christ, there's a judgment for us too. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of all that we have done, whether good or bad. So you and I as believers must one day stand before the Bema or the judgment seat of Christ and you and I must give an account of all that we have done in the body, whether good or bad. So the question here is not, are you saved? Because that's not one of works. That's related to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question the Lord is going to ask is, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with your talents, your skills, the open doors that I gave you, the, the money that I gave you, the time that I gave you, the skills that I gave you, the job that I gave you, the ministry that I gave you. What did you do with all these things? Paul wants to please the Lord here. Because he knows one day he must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now when we stand before the Lord, we may be surprised to discover that much of our life did not have eternal value. Much of our life did not have eternal value. Brothers and sisters, may I remind you this, this truth and it hits me every single day. That the preacher standing up here and preaching 
has no advantage over the person who serves food faithfully. The richest people in heaven will no doubt be the most forgotten people on earth. They are not the high and mighty, but they could be the overlooked widow who faithfully prayed for the church. It could be the single mom who raised four kids without any complaints for the sake of Christ. It could be that courageous missionary who went to a dangerous land forsaking his comforts. Brothers and sisters, these could be the people who are the gold medal winners of heaven. These are the people who are the Academy Award winners of heaven because you are not evaluated on the quantity or the quality of what you do in what's been given to you. The judgment is based on quality, not on quantity. Are you preparing yourself for the return of Christ? Am I preparing myself for the return of Christ? So what's the point of this morning's sermon? The whole passage basically says, reflect the life of the kingdom and be faithful to the end as you eagerly await the kingdom's full establishment. Reflect the life of the kingdom and be faithful to the end as you eagerly await the kingdom's full establishment. You and I must set our eyes on pleasing the Lord in everything, even as we await his glorious return. Just one more minute, uh, have an illustration and I'll be through. I think somebody else gave that illustration. Uh, I found that illustration too, so pardon me, I didn't copy it from you, but I got it from somewhere else. <laughs> so, uh, I know who it is, it's, I think it was Jerry who gave this illustration. Uh, anyway, so uh, I'm reminded of the missionary who came on the same ship back to America, back to New York, where Teddy Roosevelt was on the ship too. And he came from Africa, he was a missionary. And he saw a lot of people waiting on the deck and cheering and he thought it was it was for himself. And, uh, and he got on the ship and nobody came to say hello to him. But everybody went to Teddy Roosevelt. You can understand that, right? He's the president of the United States. So the, the whole fanfare was for him. Not a single person came to, to greet him. So he was forlorn. He just got on the ship and he walked away. And as he was walking on one of the streets of New York, getting back home, he thought to himself, when I came back home, not a single person came to greet me. And then the Lord prompted a thought in his heart and said, Son, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the hope of the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Passages like these remind us that we are the sons of the kingdom and we have a task to do here. We have a life to live here. And one day we must stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of all that we've done in the body, both good and bad. As we stand one day before your kingdom, O Lord, help us to live a life right now in such a way that we don't have to be ashamed or lose the rewards that you have to give us. We pray for the church right now, Lord. We pray that all of us, recognizing where the kingdom is, as sons of the kingdom, invite people into the space where they can enjoy the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit in the community of God's kingdom. And help us all to live together, faithful to the end, with the hope that one day, when you return, we'll be with you in that glorious moment. We also pray for the second meeting, where uh, Leju will be taking a session, the question answer session, everything, O Lord, we pray 
that the fellowship time and the rest of the time will be for the glory and the honor of your name. In Jesus' name.